Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best founders and investors to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is Neil, the founder and CEO of Lunio. Neil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And a great story that we will have today coming from Manchester. Uh, welcome to, to the show, Neil, again. And uh, yeah, let, let us know more about your background and how did you end up uh, having the idea of starting up Lunio? Sure. So um, as you said, I'm Neil, I'm CEO here at Lunio. Um, and in terms of background, so if we go back very far to when I was 13, 14, uh, I was very much just fascinated by all things like marketing, um, all mm -hmm. things ads. You know, I made my first revenue generating website like age 13, I think I was, 13 or 14, wow. um, making money through like ads arbitrage. So buying traffic and then monetizing that traffic to a greater extent than what I was paying to buy it and so on. So worked very well, um, maybe slightly shady in some areas of you know how you make that money with ads and so on um, some of the mm -hmm. stuff that we're fighting against now maybe even. um but it's long enough ago that i can probably say that now um <laughs> so yeah been in that since since i was a very young making you know decent money for a 13 14 year old um not exactly huge by today's standards but you know it's exciting at the time and that really sparked that passion for you know, the value that you can drive out of marketing and the things mm -hmm. that we can do with marketing uh so from there, went to university, uh, decided hated university, everything about it. It just wasn't me at all. I was you know, really good grades at school and everything. It's like, you go to university, that's what you do. That's the path mm -hmm. you take. You go and do medicine or law. I, no, hated it, everything. <laughs> so dropped out of that, went to work uh, at a place called AO. They're a white goods retailer e-commerce company here in the UK mm -hmm. on their performance marketing team. Uh, so had a really good time there, but I wasn't there for very long. Learned a lot but decided that yeah it's corporate and i don't do corporate and anyone that's right. a lunio will understand what i mean by that like i do not do corporate at all uh, so very quickly decided there actually i'm pretty much unmanageable i suppose is the way right. to describe it uh, i'm not painting myself in a good picture here right but pretty much unmanageable um and so from there, I, decided... I, I felt exactly like you so i, I can understand <laughs> you what get it, yeah. i think to be honest most most founders do like exactly. i think most founders are pretty unmanageable um and, and so i've been in some processes and it doesn't work so they, they always catch me <laughs> yeah yeah makes sense um and you know decided actually i'm I'm fairly good at what I do. I thought I was fairly good at what I do. Looking back, I was probably very naive there, but thought I was fairly good at what I did. Uh, mm -hmm. So I could do this on my own and being you know, an 18, 19 year old kid with a massive ego felt I, I can do this better than anybody out there. I'll, I'll do it by myself. Uh, it worked out really well. We built a performance marketing agency. We had some great clients and actually met my, uh, well, I founded that with one of my co-founders now and I met my other co-founders uh, through that agency. So they were one of our largest clients. And so we actually built, Zunio. We used to be called PPC Protect for anyone who's followed us for a while. Um, mm -hmm. Built that out of that agency. So we actually had a product that we sold to our clients and then we monetized it from there and you know, rolled it into its own actual business and, and sort of scaled it from that. We realized that agencies are not very fun to scale. They require headcount. Managing people is right. not my strong point. It's not something I'm hugely interested in. And actually SaaS is so much more scalable. It's so much more exciting and interesting. So that was sort of the path forward that we decided to take. That, that's definitely a, a great story. And uh, 
And I think that the, the time you started working with with digital marketing, um, it was really a new category, right? So you could, the, the ones that start learning at that time knew almost the, the most about the industry. So the even the old marketeers, marketeer style needed to learn everything about digital marketing and and they need to embark in new courses and so on. And, uh, and, and the, good, the good thing is also, the algorithms and a lot of things change very quickly. So you need to also have that kind of um, mindset of always be learning, always be curious, right? Always be learning more and more and more to be able to to perform well uh, with what you do in this in this category, right? So I'm curious to see this transition from an agency that happens with with a lot of us, right? So a services business. We are not happy with the with the with the path to scale the business, and then evolving into more uh, more scalable uh, software as a service uh, business model. So, and how Lunio comes to 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 the stage? <laughs> Let's say. Uh, good question, because it feels like yesterday, but also a long time ago. <laughs> so, 2016. Yeah, so 2016 was when we officially founded the the business entity um, of, like I say, what was PPC Protect, uh, now, now Lunio, and really didn't do a whole lot with it for the first two years. I say didn't do a whole lot, I'm speaking commercial terms here. So we built the products, um, MVP, whatever you want to call it, looking back at it, embarrassing version of the product, maybe compared to what it is today, but MVP version nonetheless. Um, So built that and then really commercialized that in 2018. That was when we really started winding down agency operations and kind of went all in on it. It was a risk at the time. It was literally one of those, like, how will I pay my rent at the end of the month kind of conversations. Um, But thankfully it went well. Maybe it was stupid looking back at it, but it went really well for us. I'm glad we we took the risk. Um, so we commercialized that in 2018. We bootstrapped that through to the end of 2019. So there was a small mm-hmm. team of, we had four founders. We have three now, which I'm sure we'll touch on at some point. Um, yeah. So we had four founders and then I think one or two people working for us. Like it was a really, really small team um, based in a attic in Bolton with bars on the windows. Like really every cliche you can imagine in the startup life, like we were pretty much hitting it at this point. Um, <laughs> and then end of 2019, we raised a pre-seed round from SFC Capital and our SEIS allocation was due to expire. So it's like small 25,000 rounds, something like that. Mm-hmm. Use that to hire a developer, full-time developer, uh, and also first salesperson. And then again, we ran that through to late 2020, where we raised our seed round from Fuel Ventures. That was a big around like 2.1 million pounds. Um, mm-hmm. And then saw that through to our series a which we closed last september which was a 15 million dollar round which at the time was 13 or 14 million pounds i don't know what the exchange rate is today but it's all over the place at the moment um but yeah it was around 13 14 million pound round um and we've we've always had this kind of mentality of you know we will go and raise money when we are at break even you know on paper or or near profitability so that we have that flexibility to choose if we want to raise or not and that served us yeah served us really well i'd say um over the years but that's kind of the story of the short version of yeah where we are today so in in other words you were almost able to bootstrap your first product until you were able to be investable uh, at the end of 2019 and and even after that, you you kept very cautious in the way you you raise capital, and we will discuss a little bit more there uh, later. How how you still go through the VC path, 
but not going crazy uh, yeah. walking through the VC path, right? So <laughs> really using it as a tool and uh, making it also align with your vision and with your risk appetite, uh, yeah. let's say, because sometimes the... the and, and we are seeing more and more founders being aware of that, right? So uh, they want kind of the VC path, but they don't want the unicorn uh, path. Uh, and they want to, they prefer to have a, a nice exit, then risk everything for not having anything, neither a sustainable yeah. business uh, in, in the process. And, and maybe, again, it depends on our profile as entrepreneurs. It depends on the moment of our lives as well, right? So, but I think it also depends on, on our profile because you you started your company uh, quite young, right? So you, you could go to the unicorn uh, option because then you can also build another company still after that or another two and 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 maybe only have success with with the fourth. The good news is that we already are building uh, a, a second uh, right sustainable uh, business using still uh, BC capital on the way. Cool. And you were talking about the founding team. So uh, and you also said that uh, one of your largest clients came to to join with the founding team another founder was already working in the in the agency with you uh tell us more about those four people what what was the split of responsibilities where they came from etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah, so it's quite a large founding team actually i think having spoken to a lot of founders four feels fairly right. unusual um right. not massively so but yeah fairly fairly unusual so in terms of how that came to be uh, myself and one of our co-founders like I say ran that agency uh, so we've been working together for probably nine years at this point I don't know each other very well uh, and then our... in what position uh, typically what what do you split there in and terms so of they oversee yeah. all of our marketing and branding activity uh, Got so it. they are yeah. so I don't have a creative bone in my body they do like <laughs> they're very creative so <laughs> okay yeah don't put me in charge of creative it would oh, be a disastrous <laughs> outcome um, and then the other two are my, my COO Chief Operations Officer and was our CTO. He's now executed the business. Uh, so they, our COO was our largest client on the agency side, and we actually built the MVP of the product to solve a problem he was having. So it was specifically built for him, and then rolled out wider from there. Right. Um, and our based CTO, in Israel, right? Uh, based the... in Israel, yeah. yeah. Um, and then our CTO at the time was his lead engineer on his other business. He had an e-commerce business that he was running. Uh, so yeah, CTO was his lead engineer. He's actually based in the US, so we had a mix of two from the uk one from the us one from israel so yeah. very diverse, diverse. Team. lots of opinions lots of very different ways of resolving problems uh, which is always good fun i guess looking back at it but it does give right. you a lot of different insights into you know, how to approach things i think in although one of those fundamentally didn't work out and we ended up with three i'm, I'm glad that we had the four to start i think it gave us a really good yeah, grounding and a lot right. of diverse opinions to work from and, and we don't talk too much about that. First thing that uh, I would highlight what you just said, right? Uh, we always talk about the importance of having diverse teams and it all starts with having a diverse uh, founding team. And this is also a huge competitive edge, for instance, to, to have a US co-founder, European, UK co-founder, and also an Israeli uh, co-founder. It helps already to give you a, a broader view about the world and, and potential of expansion, even if you end up focusing just in the US or just in Europe or whatever it is your um, expansion strategy. 
the second thing is it's really, really difficult to be able to build that that founding team, right? So you you were, uh, I would not say lucky because there is no such thing as, as, as lucky, but uh, you were able to test your relationship with your co-founder at, at the agency. One of one of the clients you already have a, a very close contact with with him. Uh, you were also able to to develop a relationship and be the the right timing for all. Uh, and then you had your uh, U.S. technical founder. And then it happens, right? So especially with four people, it, it becomes more difficult to keep all the founding team during all stages of growth uh, of the company. And and for one of them, it it didn't make sense to to keep uh, with you. Uh, how did you manage this this transition? Because I, I'm sure we know it happens to a lot of uh, of founding teams, and I think it's also nice when we talk openly about it. And I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I I'm, I agree. It, it happens to gosh, so many founders that I speak to. I think yeah. it's I've read somewhere it was the number one cause of startups failing exactly. is founder conflict. Um, I, I guess the lesson that we should have learned from it is when you see those signs developing, we should have acted sooner rather than perhaps waiting as long as we did to act on it. Um, but it's, it's exactly what you said, like ultimately people have different visions for where they want to take this business. Their risk appetite becomes very different. Some people might be much more in favor of taking greater risks. Some might have families that they need to take care of. They want you know just right. money in their pocket and they're done and on they move, you know, that kind of thing. So it really did just come down to, yeah, a difference in where we wanted to go you know we had three of us that wanted to build something big uh, you said before about unicorns i'm not against being a unicorn it'd be nice yeah. but it's not <laughs> sort of be all end all right. we actually follow something called the zebra mentality that i can touch on later right. it's a pretty pretty cool mentality you might have heard of it before um, yeah. and then we had you know one co-founder who was very much like we're doing a million dollars a year like that's cool that's that's a lot well right. it's not to us and so we have to make that decision of are we going to go down this sort of vc back route? are we going to raise you know decent money we're going to build something big and have a really meaningful life-changing exit and you know, change the yeah. industry off the back of it which is what we want to do or are yeah. we going to go down this route of you know maybe you go from one to two million and you sell at that point and it just wasn't us at all um so right. we decided yeah this is not you know where we want to be at this point we had to make that difficult decision because it was like a three versus one it wasn't that it was a mutual parting of ways it was a firing right. basically which is tough um and yeah, yeah i mean you know, you you're basically taking someone that you've been pretty much married to for four or five years right. and divorcing them like that's the only way i can sort of compare it to so it's Absolutely. difficult and it's it's difficult for everybody involved and yeah i don't regret having them as a co-founder, they did amazing work. We wouldn't be where we are without them. They just were not the right fit for moving forwards from that point. It, it, it makes a lot of sense. And and the way you did it was you were able to have that exit to happen uh, when you when you raised Series A, right? So also for other founders that are listening and are thinking about the way we are not able to keep together as a team. Definitely, we have very different visions about the future. So how are we able to provide an exit for, for one of the co-founders that is not aligned with us yeah. or, or or to make even uh, fire the, the co-founder, which is not a, a, an easy way in, in the most elegant and fair way? Right? Yeah, it's Possible. difficult. It's very difficult. But at the same time, it, it really didn't matter to us. However, 
they may have thought differently at the time or they wouldn't see it or whatever. It, it really mattered to us that they were fa fairly compensated for the work that they had put into the business. So we weren't interested in, right, get rid of them, get as many of those shares back as possible. You know, which bad lever provisions can we execute? Like, we weren't interested in any of that. It was all about making it you know, fair and seamless from our side, but also you have to protect the business. That's obviously a consideration mm -hmm. there. Um, so leaving us in a position where although they held some equity, it, it couldn't impact the business decisions further down the road. Um, right. And then, yeah, Series A, you know, they did very well out of it financially. They're pretty much set for life off the back of that. So good for them, happy for them, awesome. well-deserved. Um, and then we can move forwards on you know, the path that we want to. Yeah, sounds sounds great, and uh, and something that always comes in in startup mentality. But of course, at Series A, you already had a considerable headcount. What 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 was the headcount when you raised Series A? Uh, uh, it was about 40, 45. Okay, uh, right and now you are around uh, uh, ninety. Ninety. Okay, almost uh, the double uh, of of the size, uh, which. So uh, again, you already have a technical team right in in place, so it is not the same damage as when you lose your technical co-founder co-founder uh, very early on, right? Because then another you have, we have the CEO, the COO, uh, your Israeli co-founder, and your partner with with branding uh, and, and communications. If I'm if I'm not wrong, uh, or, or close. <laughs> uh what what did you say you, you can Brand, you branding can and marketing yeah branding and marketing perfect uh and um uh, so in, in that sense i would say if it was too early it it would be a very important piece of of the founding team which would be the technical team but i assume it with 45 uh, team members it was we you already have a, a technical team uh, in place to to ensure that we didn't lo lost uh, lose touch with with the product and yeah. and the technical side of it yeah i mean we we were less than 45 when we let him go so we were 45 at series a um, but we actually let him go about 10 months before the series a it's just that was the point at which he could cash out so i think we were about we grew quite slowly from there to series i think it was like 35 people so it was still significant we had a significant like 12 15 people engineering team something like that okay. at the time so there was yeah a lot of a lot of coverage there um although we do now have a new cto who had to kind of rebuild everything from the ground up sort of exactly 24 hours which is a exactly. fun challenge um but yeah it worked out in the end and, and we were talking about having a diverse founding team which is amazing we can come up with with new solutions but at the same time uh being remote from day one having different cultural approaches and views about the same thing can create also uh, innovation, but also some friction and, and some conflict and how to manage, for instance, the Israeli versus the British style uh, and, and mindsets, right? So uh, how were you able to bridge uh, those different mindsets uh, across your funding team? That's a really good question because the approach is very different. Like the sort of British style, so to speak, is very reserved. We never say what we actually mean. You know, we might say, "Oh, it's great," but it needs a few tweaks. When in reality, we mean it's absolutely rubbish. Right? We work the whole thing. The typical interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then what, what I'm saying in Portuguese, I, I say it literally. So when I say interesting, is because I really mean interesting, and I'm talking with a British person. Say, you are saying interesting. It, yeah, we don't mean interesting. <laughs> we mean it's terrible, and we just don't want to say to your face. <laughs> so there, there is a very different dynamic there. I mean, I'm lucky that we have a, a very close and open relationship in the sense that you know, they give feedback very directly to me. I can give feedback very directly to them. Like it's one of the things we adopted very early on is there are there are downsides to that. I call it Israeli mentality. Like that's just me kind of 
summarizing it. I don't necessarily mean it's exactly that, but that direct approach, there are downsides to it as well, especially when people feel like they're being attacked from you know, the things that people are saying, which isn't the case. So we set the groundwork really clearly of direct feedback is absolutely welcomed. Um, I actually found out recently there is a name for it. So our head of people was talking about something called radical candor. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kim Scott. Uh, yeah. There is a book so, even about it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's apparently a great book, not read it. We'll do it at yeah. some point. Um, so but that's the approach that we very much took from day one. And I think that worked really well for us. The remote side was definitely a challenge. It did work very well when COVID came around because everyone was scrambling to move to remote and we'd done that since day one, nothing changed. It was same as always. Um, So my co-founder from Israel actually now lives in Manchester and he does now work from from the office. Um, So we we made the decision that that we're growing really, really quickly. Like we're going in the direction that we want to, but we've got big plans. Can we realistically do this with a fully remote team? We -hmm. can, but it's going to be a lot more difficult than if we can get everyone in a room and just, you know, find things out and push through things. Um, so they made the decision to move over here. And I would say it's a really good decision. Like it's definitely accelerated yeah. the growth of the business. Um, and you're, not to say we couldn't have done it remotely, but I think it would have introduced a lot more challenges at this scale. Right. Just out of curiosity, definitely Israeli companies have a, a close relationship and uh, they are super good at being able to scale up in the U.S., um, especially with with East Coast, uh, at least all the examples that that comes to my mind, uh, there was maybe uh, an easier connection between your American co-founder and your Israeli uh, co-founder, and 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 the British style was in the middle, right? Trying to to manage the the how direct they they were. Of course, we we know that there are subcultures across the UK and across the US and across any country in the world. New York and and San Francisco are completely different cultures uh, as it is Midwest or Texas and Florida and, and so on. But in general, there was a, a good uh, chemistry between the American style and the Israeli style. Or... Um, it's an interesting one actually because I would say usually yes, that would be the case. In our instance. No, probably That's not. Particular um, situation, right? But I, I think a lot of it comes down to, like you say, those regional differences. Um, so our co-founders from a part of the US where everyone is very overly outwardly friendly, even if they okay. don't necessarily mean it, they'll always portray themselves as very friendly and agreeable and everything, and actually yeah. sometimes being... Not so, a New Yorker. <laughs> no, he's definitely not a New Yorker. Um, and sometimes being so agreeable can cause problems in and of itself. You know, Sometimes right. you should just stand up and say, no, I don't agree with this. So I think in that instance, it, it caused some issues. Um, but if it was like a New Yorker or someone from Boston or somewhere on the East Coast, then yes, I definitely right. would agree that it'd be very similar in that sense. Right. So let's go to go to market. Um, so what is your kind of ideal customer profile for, for Lunio? Uh, what has been some of the main lessons to get to market? Because it's important to have a great product, but then uh, it's all about uh, distribution and, uh, and being able to to reach to to the right ICP and and delivering or solving address the main pains of uh, of that ICP right yeah so we were quite lucky that our background of you know, most of our founding team is in inbound marketing so from day one we had really strong like SEO we had really strong paid search programmatic like you know just general paid right. media campaigns and so on. Yeah, it's obviously what the agency was was doing as well. So we were really strong in that sense to the point that we didn't even start doing any outbound until about September last year. So we scaled all the way up to there just purely through inbound. Uh, Could we have scaled faster with outbound? Yeah, maybe, but we're 
knew what we knew, we're comfortable with it. Yeah, that's the route that we, we wanted to take. And nice. the quality of inbound is yeah, 100x usually what you get on outbound. Yes, the deal sizes are generally smaller, but then people are right. actually engaging with your product. They want it, there's a demand there and you're just capturing that demand. So that yeah. worked really, really well for us. Um, in terms of the types of clients that we work with, work with performance marketing teams, all the way from like CMO down to like a VP of demand or VP paid media, mm-hmm. or that kind of level. Mm-hmm. Um, generally spending anything from two to a hundred million dollars a year on advertising that kind two million not just two dollars obviously mm-hmm. uh, that kind of range um, we used to be a lot smaller scale when we started out so we were very smb uh, you could sign up on our website pop your credit card in self-service off you go mm-hmm. we moved away from that completely we found that the market was completely saturated the solutions out there were i mean not good i guess is one way to put it but by instead of fighting against that and saying, you know, we're going to try and change it with all of these $50, $70 a month customers, like you just can't, you don't have enough revenue to do that. You need such right. in, immense scale. Uh, we decided to move up market instead. Um, and that's worked really well for us. Like we can invest in product, we can invest in client support uh, and customer support. We can invest in customer success as well, making sure they're getting everything out of the platform. You know, the stuff that you can't necessarily do when someone's paying you $50 a month, you know. Right. If you're paying $50 a month, you say, we'll give you a client success manager. Like, no, they won't, right? It'll be an automated bot or someone with 50,000 accounts. Like, you just can't service that. Right. Um, so, yeah, that worked really well for us. That was kind of the inflection point where we really started to accelerate growth moving forwards. Got it. So, which, which means that your ICP now, nowadays, it, it depends on the size of the market, of the marketing team and on what is your kind of acquisition uh budget or paid marketing uh budget right so uh you would say kind of more mid-market or high mid-market low mid-market mid-market yeah mid mid mid-market to upper mid-market you know lower enterprise sometimes i mean it's hard to define sometimes because you can have brands that are huge household brands like we have some on our client roster that if i say to you you'll be like of course i'll show you the logo you'll be like i know that brand obviously and they might spend a million a year like it's yeah. not significant. And we have other brands that you probably think, I've never heard of them. I have no idea what they do and they're doing 150 million a year. So it's quite variable in that sense. Um, yeah. But yeah, we, we would define it as sort of mid-market. We're not SMB. If you're a small business and you want a solution for this, there's some out there. Go and try them and find out for yourself how good they are or not. That's your choice. And if you want really, really big enterprise, you know, sort of $500 billion a year of ad spend, being completely transparent with probably right. not going to be supporting you at this point um certainly not a number of them but that mid-market and lower enterprise space that's where we really excel and we can give the best service to our clients right. it makes sense also if, if it was enterprise your target you would need to have built your uh outbound team much earlier even yeah. if inbound would be critical also to to bring interest across certain verticals for for enterprise and, and in, in terms of the pain points that that you solve there is something intriguing that that you have on your linkedin which is over half of internet traffic is non-human uh with over 30 percent coming from bad bots uh and 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 then of course you have a bit of your developer position they waste your acquisition budgets your reporting metrics and give you false data to to work with so Luno stops these bots in their tracks 
automatically. So maybe I, I summarize it a bit, the, the problems that you solve for, for, for this ICP. Right? Yeah, you pretty much nailed it there. It's pretty much perfect. <laughs> you, you did a great job. I just read what, what, you, what you wrote. <laughs> I'm glad somebody reads it. I always wonder who actually reads those things. Um, so yeah, I mean, you've kind of summarized the value prop there. Like we eliminate invalid and fraudulent traffic on paid media campaigns. So that could be bots, fake users, um, anyone with malicious intent or what we call non-converting intent. So they're there to scrape prices, for example, for comparison's sake, rather than actually buy products, right. things like that. Um, so it's about half of all internet traffic, as you said, comes from bots. Of that, just over 30% is yeah, the bad bots, things that pose a risk to the website. When it comes to paid media specifically, we find, depending on channel, geography, industry, and so on, anything from six, 7% of media spend up to on display campaigns especially like 25 30 percent even at the higher end although that is sort of an edge case but it can go as high as that is wasted to bot activity fake users invalid users and so on and the question we always get is aren't the networks doing anything about this and you know the reality right. is they they only do so much like google facebook these kind of networks they only do so much because where's the financial incentive to stop traffic that you're being paid for Right. As long as the platform gives a good enough ROI, exactly. As long as the platform gives a good enough ROI, then you're going to put your ad dollars there anyway, right? So it's about giving that extra independent layer of verification on top of that and then being proactive in excluding those users across all the different channels moving forwards. Right. Uh, we don't we don't have enough time, but definitely you you guys are experts also in uh, in the, on the marketing side, uh, and it would be nice to to learn some of your inbound tips on because we know that uh, starting with inbound and making inbound successful it, it's it's a very important foundation for any uh, startup and and scale up, and you you just shown it you were able to get to one million plus in revenue just with inbound and just recently you were a, you you start uh, creating your outbound uh, motion i assume that for for this kind of motion maybe the channel or partners might not make yet too much sense uh, yes or no so we we do um, have a channel partner program yeah so it's okay, it's an is. interesting one actually so inbound got us up to like say about about series a um, so actually several multiples above that 1 million threshold was was pure inbound um, and then started scaling yeah outbound at the same time as series a and then partners and channels we started about eight months ago as a sort of dedicated function it's actually we class it separate to even sales so the sort of pillars of revenue for us are cs sales partnerships and demand generation and for q4 so our quarter starts first of february so q4 last year up to the end of january um channel was our largest driver of revenue by some margin wow. it was about 75 percent okay. of all new revenue wow amazing uh any other insights on uh, on how you made channel work so well uh good question because if you ask our vp of partnerships he'll say it's all his success but no <laughs> uh, he guarantee you will he's probably going to listen to this and yeah it's, bring it up it's, anyway it's a it's a cross-functional uh, effort always right even inbound outbound yeah i mean he's he's very very good by the way just putting that out there <laughs> he does a fantastic job um i think a big part of it is for us channel is is purely agencies like we don't at this point engage with tech partners or anything like that it's just purely digital agencies and of course it makes a lot of sense. we come from that world yeah, we have people here that have worked at the big agencies. Um, I obviously mm -hmm. didn't work at the big agency, but I ran the agency. I know the pain points. I, I know how to get into them, the messaging that resonates. Um, so I think that's why it's been so successful. It's yeah, We know that world inside out. We know how to give them value, what they look for, the kind of pricing conversations that they're going to have, the questions they're going to have around how they can upsell, markup, resell, beat the cost, yeah. you know, whatever it might be. 
Um, so yeah, I think because we know that so well, that's why that's that's really worked. Yeah, incredibly well for right. us. So it was really starting with inbound, proving the model, evolving to channel, and and uh, now having uh, starting to plant the seed with uh, with outbound, uh, and also investing on a separate function for for channel uh, eight months ago. But uh, you'd say that inbound and channel are the main, and especially channel with seventy five percent of the revenue coming from 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 the channel <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's it's hard out there for outbound at the moment like our team's doing pretty well actually um yeah. the, the numbers are looking good but yeah it's a tough tough market out there whereas when you come yeah. to channel and these agencies have clients and you're giving you know, a huge value prop to their clients exactly. right like you're giving massive value back to them, it makes it a lot easier b to b to b right yeah yeah exactly <laughs> That never thought about that B two B two B. Usually it's a B two B two C or B two C two B, and so on. Just just having some fun with uh, with the go to market motions. Uh, awesome, but uh, you need to come back to, to 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 share a little bit more of your insights on on the inbound part because I think it's critical for the success of any startup. But just with a measure of time, and uh, there are so much m m much more topics that we would love to cover. Let's move to to fundraising and uh, to the beginning of our conversation that you said that uh, nothing wrong about being a unicorn, but it it must be a consequence and not getting to become a unicorn at all uh, at all costs. And so you try to to have always a bootstrapping mindset, but really using cash to be able to uh, grow faster. But anyway, you would be growing without, with uh, or without uh, that capital. The, the only difference is that you might be growing slow, slow, slower than you, what you are growing with uh, with that extra capital. So, what has been some of your uh, lessons learned uh, with with fundraising that you'd like to highlight today, Bill? Um, it's a good question. I think the best way to summarize it is only take money if it aligns with your long term goals. Yeah. So we have we've been in very fortunate positions in the past where you know we've had term sheets in front of us that are numbers that would make your eyes water and valuations that would mean everyone is out partying all weekend and you know that kind of level, and right. we didn't take them. And the reason we didn't take them is when we look at where we want to go and we look at how we want to get there, it gave us a very very narrow path and sort of a really narrow window of opportunity of right if we take this money we have six months to hit these metrics and if we don't it's over it's complete game over they're not going to care right. about us anymore like we're just another one on the pile of failed startups a zombie. exactly and if it works great like everyone will make you know a billion dollars off the back of it right but then right. you work backwards from there and you say okay well why am i in this personally well i'm not a hugely money motivated person and most of my co-founder team aren't so then we look at it and say what's the goal for us if we get an exit and we get you know 50 million each, right? 100 million each, whatever it is. Or you do a, you do a big unicorn exit and you get a billion each. Does it make a difference to my life? No, it doesn't. Right? It makes zero difference whatsoever to me. So why would I have a you 5% know, chance of success when I can have a 50% chance of success at right. something that might be a slightly lower valuation? But actually, everyone's very happy. You have VCs that are aligned with that, that aren't going to make it so you dread coming to work and you're stressed every single day. And just mm -hmm. that whole ecosystem around you is, is built around that. So... I think identifying early on, do you want to go down that you know, burn at all costs, 1% success, but if it's successful, you make a huge right. amount of money, or do you want to do it a bit more sustainably? And the way we look at it is, yes, we are, I guess, the scale up now or you know, startup, whatever terminology you want to use, but yeah. fundamentally to us, the most important thing is building a sustainable business. 
And I think it's a difference. It's perhaps a difference of UK versus US as well. You know, in the US, yeah. if you get to 18 months and you're not doing 5 million in revenue, hey, you failed, shut it down, start again, do another business. <laughs> Whereas in the UK, it's much of a slower burn, but it's yeah. more about building that actual sustainable business long-term. Right. Um, and we're lucky that we've got investors that very much share that mindset with us. What an European uh, mindset, uh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, they, they could they could do higher valuations. I think you, you, UK and EU VCs are very far behind yeah. the US in that sense. Uh, but yeah, as a mentality, I actually think it's healthier for the ecosystem, the way that they approach it. Right. And I think it's also important to understand that sometimes you can create very good businesses, but those businesses might not be in a category or even the business model didn't have the potential to really become unicorn business. And you are just uh, sending you uh, against a, a wall, right? So yep. uh, it, it will not work. Uh, and that's why it's it's so good to do what you just did which in the beginning, which was to go through the, the process of finding product market fit without having uh, a gun in the head um, to to be able to to grow as quickly as possible even if you were wrong uh, if you were growing with uh, with the wrong icp in the wrong markets uh, just trying to find avenues of growth and and being able to get to a moment that you are not able to to keep scaling effectively because you were just adding garbage in the short term to be able to do the metrics but they will not be sustainable in terms of uh, uh, economics so really protecting and something that i really enjoyed when when we were um, having a shot before before the show that you said that you also try to keep your burn rate of a multiple of one of mrr which which i think it's it's yeah just saying that tells a lot about about your mindset about the way you 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 lead the business yeah i mean that's that's a big it's a big focus for us obviously if we raise money then yes there's going to be a period of burn naturally i mean that's why you raise money right as long as we know what we're putting it into um, but getting it to that sort of multiple of one as soon as possible that's where we very right. much always aim to be that's where we've always been when we've gone to raise so we've never raised when we've deviated from that multiple of one uh, and right. yeah it served us it served us very well right there are instances in the past especially during the covid bubble where you know, tech valuations were insane you could raise a lot more money at a higher valuation right some players in our did our space did i'm not naming names but i'm sure they'll listen mm -hmm. to this and email me because they always do um, <laughs> and they maybe got a little bit caught out by that you know they, they might be in a tricky situation now where you've raised a ton of money at a huge valuation and actually it's oh shit the portfolio is down by 70 percent. how do we raise the next round we can't we have to make do with what we have we're very lucky right. we're not in that position we never will be in that position that's not how we would ever want to do things i guess it goes back to that you know, unicorn versus zebra kind of approach that i was touching on before right. can you just remind us about the zebra approach for the ones uh we're not familiar with, with so zebra? The, the zebra approach is all about building sustainable businesses first um so it focuses on a people first culture which is something that we really really strongly yeah. believe in here um and that your people will be the best thing to help you build a long-term sustainable business it's about providing genuine value to the world uh, not just the market that you serve but you know beyond that and you know, ecological impact and all that type of thing over the returns of vc fund managers basically so yeah. you're not building businesses that have this you might return the entire fund 10 times or you might collapse. It's more, yeah, we're going to build a big business. It will be sustainable, but we're not here just to make a ton of money. There's a lot more to it than that. And actually the financial outcome will be slightly lower, but there'll be a higher chance of it happening. Yeah. And just picking that, that point, just to, to talk about some of your 
initiatives around the environment and sustainability and uh, the, the net zero program uh, that you have in place, I think it would be a, a good bridge both to your intent of being a, a people first business and also uh, taking care of the planet. Yeah, and we do we do a lot of work around that. Um, we're actually going through B Corp certification at the moment, if you're familiar with awesome. yeah. B Corp, um, which is a cool project, pretty intense actually, but a cool project nonetheless. Um, I think one of the best things that we do is we offset all carbon emissions for our clients by 10x. So what I mean by that is the carbon emissions from the servers and the data farms so on that we use to process our clients' data, to you know, analyze their traffic, make decisions and so on. Mm -hmm. um, we have agreements in place with your various different data, uh, data center providers that tell us how much CO2 that is emitting. And then we offset that through uh, someone called Ecology. They're one of our ecological partners. They do uh, tree planting and various other sort of climate initiatives in mostly East Africa, but some other parts of the world as well. Um, and yeah, we take that amount of CO2. We offset it by 10x for every individual client each year. So that could be through tree planting, investing in solar, investing in hydroelectric. And the good thing about that is it's not only removing that carbon from the atmosphere at 10x times but it's supporting local communities as well so all of these projects are managed by people who live on or were living on less than a dollar a day you know absolute poverty and they're paid to maintain these tree farms and they're farming the fruits and so on, and it gives them a life right it gives them money to be able to do whatever it is that they want to do so it's having that Amazing. greater impact beyond just what we do and we did that because it's the right thing to do like it's a cost to us but it just felt the right thing to do we can have a positive impact on the world what we found out sort of quite quickly after was actually it had a huge commercial benefit as well because people would say oh you're ticking a box on my csr checklist right i have to look at right. various different things and it gives you another champion in the business especially when you're going through procurement if you've got two solutions light for light they're the same price this one helps mm -hmm. hit csr goals this doesn't we go with this one so for a minimal cost it had a huge impact in general and then there was also that commercial benefit alongside it and i think it's just a good example of you know, we always just try and do the right thing going back to vcs one yeah. of the questions that we ask every VC when we get to final stages with them is what's more important doing the profitable thing or the right thing. And it's really interesting to see the reactions because some of them are like, I don't really want to work with you anymore. Right. And some of them are really open. And the ones that we ended up working with, they were the only ones that straight away without even thinking about it, they said, always do the right thing because it leads to profit in the end. And that's very oh, much nice. our mentality on it. Um, so yeah, just the whole thing, I guess, aligns with how we would look at the world and, and sort of our take on it. And the great point on ensuring that the, the values of everyone in the business are aligned and uh, that, that's a purpose-driven uh, business as well, both for, for team members, for customers, for investors, for everyone would be part of a movement and really seeing the difference that that movement is is making uh, in the world. And we talked in the beginning uh, about the importance of having the founding team right. And we also listen a lot of times, for instance, in the Masters of Scale uh, of Reid Hoffman, the, the podcast, how important it is to be really careful about the, the first 100 people that you hire. There is something very interesting that I that I found about what you did, which is you invested in an internal talent acquisition team very early on. We 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 have this advice uh, again and again and again, but typically, uh, given the pressure of hiring people very quickly, sometimes we rely too much on agencies. Again, you are not against agencies, but you you were able to use both. 
in order to ensure that you have a, a great cultural fit uh, and the right people on the right seats as you as you go to an the hundred people mark uh, that is pretty close, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it was it was slightly a risk, I suppose, because you're you're hiring someone to hire people, but you can only hire those people if you keep growing at the rate that you say you're going to grow at. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was somewhat of a risk in that way, but it was actually came through a recruiter who placed someone with us who was like, you know what. I'm sick of the recruitment world. Like I hate it. And having heard the stories now, I get it. Like I understand completely why. Um, and each position to us is like, why don't I work for you guys? Like, you know, recruiters charge 20%. You're hiring loads of people. And we did the maths on it, right? And if you have a $70,000 average salary, which for the UK is probably about right for the tech world, for the US, I mean, that's way too low. You can probably double that as an average, right? But obviously, yeah, salaries are massively different over there. If you hired 100 people for an average recruiter on that, it's $1.4 million in agency fees. Well, like, that's crazy. Yeah, so absolutely. we use agencies where you know, if there's really hard to find, especially senior roles, like VP level roles, and they're really hard to find in their niche and so on, then yeah, they can be hugely valuable. And we still use them for that. But having that internal function means that we can just scale so much quicker as well. Like people think agencies will be quicker. Actually, agencies send you a lot of crap as well. So having someone in-house who can filter all that, you know, it's really, really valuable. And you touched a bit on, you know, getting people that so are, are a good culture fit. We actually look at it as culture add, not culture fit. So everyone that we're bringing into the business is what do they add that we don't already have? Mm -hmm. And when you explain that to agencies, they're kind of like, yeah, but I'll just send you the highest salary because I get the biggest commission check. I don't really care. When you have someone <laughs> that's in-house, then they can actually analyze for these things and say, how is this person going to add to the business? Are they going to bring right. a dynamic that we don't have currently? And that's worked really well for us. And it goes back to what we're saying about diverse teams. You know, I fundamentally believe diverse teams perform better. And we have managed to build a very diverse team in that sense. And I think a big part of that is because we've had that internal function rather than relying on the external agencies. Love it. A lot of insights here about how to be a purpose-driven uh, business, how to, how to leverage uh, inbound, the importance of uh, founding teams, how to also uh, leverage uh, channel, uh, the fundraising approach on a, on a way that is more uh, compatible to your risk appetite uh, and to your vision. So let's go to the last segment uh, of the show where we do hear a uh, ping pong of quick questions and answers. So if you would have the opportunity to have a coffee with yourself uh, in 2016, um, what advice would you offer to your younger Neil? Oh, in 2016, good question. Um, don't be afraid to make decisions, I think would be the biggest one. Um, too many times that we've should have acted fast and actually a year later you end up taking the same decision anyway so yeah don't be afraid to take quick decisions what are you the most proud of on your journey so far um i'd say building building a place where people genuinely love coming to work they when we survey people here everybody is just so positive about the work that we do the way that we do it and to me that you know, having people that feel like that means more than having yeah you know, billion dollars in the bank or anything like that. You you built a, a great product or a great culture in in a certain um, you make your culture a product uh, as well. Worst advice ever received. <laughs> yeah, I know what this one is definitely. So I'm not na I'm not naming names. Uh, again, I'll probably get an email after this, but I'm not naming names. One of our competitors once tried to tried to buy us. Uh, and I've, I very distinctly remember them saying, if you don't sell to us, you'll regret it because you'll achieve nothing against the resources we have. 
and nothing drives me more each day other than building a great culture coming to work than to give them the middle finger and prove that they're completely wrong so i, I definitely say that well this this might be the best uh worst advice ever received in an episode <laughs> ever thank you neil for for your contribution and now the resources your favorite book business or non-business you decide a book called scouts mindset must read for anyone that's in a management team Awesome. Can you tell a little bit more about what it, what is it about? It's all about thinking in the way that a scout would on the battlefield rather than a soldier. Yeah. So looking at the yeah. big picture and looking at how things will, you know, basically a lay of the land. Like if you survey a whole lay of the land, you have the complete picture on the decisions that you'll right. make further down the road rather than making rash decisions based on immediate impulse. Love it. Favorite movie or series? Really cliche, but Silicon Valley. I know that's a right. terrible answer, but I do love the series. <laughs> that, that's perfect. And finally, your favorite podcast, excluding this one. Excluding this one. Okay. Fair. Um, <laughs> at the moment, I've been listening to a lot of um, Diary of a CEO with yeah. Stephen Bartlett. So I, I really like one. that one. Um, so yeah, I'd go with that. Steve is, is having a lot of fans here on, on the show. So <laughs> in the beginning, we had a lot of Masters of Scale uh, yeah. answers, but, I got it, but now it's it's a lot more uh, diary of, of a CEO. So he's, he's doing a, a great job. Congrats for him. And Neil, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. We are You are always invited to come back to, to share your upcoming chapters and also to, to nail a bit more about your inbound lessons learned given your background as well that might be super helpful to other founders thanks so much for making the time thanks very much for having me it's been great and to our community thanks for being there we keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life a little bit easier as you scale your business see you soon and keep scaling